Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from CBC. Thanks for joining us here today. We are off and running here already into April 2018. Uh, happy har- New York State fiscal year. <laughs> yes, happy fiscal year. Um, so it's been a great start to the year for us here on the podcast. If you've missed any of our episodes, including our most recent episode um, with State Controller Tom DiNapoli, he spoke at a CBC breakfast and then sat with Marie and I for some questions. That was a um, really interesting conversation that we had with him after. And of course, his remarks were interesting too to, to CBC on a wide range of topics. And that one, either before or after today's episode, is a really good uh, one to listen to in conjunction with what we'll discuss today. Right. And he talked about the state pension funds and philosophy about divestment and activism, and it's relevant given the recent announcement he made just yesterday. So do check it out. Yes. And uh, he also, of course, talked about the state budget, which is going to be our topic today as it is the start of the new state fiscal year. And... Governor Cuomo and state legislative leaders did get an on-time budget in before the April 1st deadline. Uh, It was passed in the wee hours Friday night into Saturday morning. The governor had a press conference late Friday night when a deal had been reached, but the legislature hadn't finished voting through the numerous budget bills until very early Saturday morning, and everybody was into the Passover and Easter weekend, and there's been lots um, written and discussed since, but we're going to break a lot of it down for you here today, and we are joined by Dave Friedfeld, CBC's Director of State Studies, a return guest with us discussing state policy and fiscal matters. Hey, Dave. Hello. Good to be here. Uh, So uh, as we dig into the state budget that was recently passed, here's Maria with the data point. $168.3 billion, the size of the New York state budget for fiscal year 19. While New York is the fourth most populous state, this is the second largest municipal budget in the United States, behind California with a $296 billion budget. Let's throw out some numbers from the budget deal. First, school aid. School aid will grow by $1 billion, more than the governor proposed, less than advocates wanted. School aid is just under 20% of the budget. Way back in the aftermath of the recession, state leaders agreed to a cap to slow the growth in school aid. They abided by it for one year and have bust through the cap every year since. New funding continues to be directed to high-wealth districts that hardly need it. Second, economic development will grow by at least $600 million. No reforms to improve transparency, accountability, or the efficacy of these investments. The state spends at least $4 billion in economic development annually. Third, $2 billion from the sale of Fidelis, a nonprofit health insurance company, to Centene. The state will claw back $500 million from Fidelis's reserves and receive $1.5 billion from the sale. There's plenty more to talk about, including how the MTA, NYCHA, and New York City fared in the budget. Dave is here to break it down for all of you and for us. Hi, Dave. Hello. So um, let's start big picture. How would you characterize this budget? I'd really call it a missed opportunity. Um, New York State and the nation as a whole is in the midst of one of the longest economic expansions in 150 years. Um, And yet the state reserves have been stagnant since March of 2015. We recently did a piece imploring New York to to increase um, their reserves because it's important. when, uh, when the economy goes down, if the state hasn't doesn't have adequate reserves, it's going to have to make immediate cuts to programs or, or drastically increase taxes. 
Um, so in this budget, spending just continues to outpace inflation. Uh, the governor likes to talk about holding state operating spending to 2% or less. Um, but if looking at the uh, the executive budget and then what was added on top, um, we're pretty confident that the growth wise should be more than 4% when you account for some of the uh, spending that's moved off budget or reclassified in some way. So that doesn't count as part of state operating spending. I'm using air quotes there for the listeners at home <laughs> um, because state operating spending is one way to define state spending. And it generally makes sense, but it doesn't include things like tax breaks. And that's something that the, the governor has used um, to decrease state operating spending is moving money from spending into a tax break, as well as moving money outside of the, you know, that limited definition of state operating spending. On this year, the big piece was moving the MTA payroll tax off budget. And that's one and a half billion dollars that's included in 2017-18 spending, and then in 2018-19 spending, it just disappears. Um, it, it looks like a $1.5 billion decrease in spending, but it's just being moved off budget. But so that's, it, that's not as scandalous as it sounds, the payroll tax going off budget. No, no, and it, it, the only thing that it really impacts is, is the calculation of growth. So it's right. not like the money's disappearing. It's, um, you know, we believe it's going to continue to be tracked. It's just somehow the, you know, the, the growth's going to look like less than it actually is. Because there's state authorities like the MTA, and then there's state operating funds, which is the state government as we sort of generally think of it. Correct, and, and, and up until, uh, you know, a few days ago, um, the state basically collected that revenue, and then they would write a check to the MTA. Um, instead, the money is going to go basically directly to the MTA, so it's not hitting the state's books, and it's not counting as state spending. But some of what you're getting at, of course, is the amount of money, if you look at, you know, so so that money is still there. It's just being accounted for in a different way, and it lets the governor, mostly the governor, but also state leaders talk mm-hmm. about staying within this growth, but they're not really staying within this 2, 2% budget growth. Correct. And so... You, the, one of the first things you said there was missed opportunity in terms of ongoing growth of the economy. And we've seen this in New York City as well, um, mm-hmm. less so in the state. But still, the, the economy keeps growing yep. and the state is not doing things to bolster reserves for when we know things will not be as good, even though there are serious problems right now. There's issues, you know, with unemployment and population decline, you know, in different upstate areas. Mm-hmm. But the idea is... There's there's money and there could be more money put aside. Definitely, and the state has received you know over ten billion dollars worth of financial settlements in the last five or six years, um, and they really haven't used that to, to bolster their reserves. Uh, the, the division of budget will point out that much of the money from reserves, say you know between three and four billion dollars, hasn't actually been spent yet. It's been allocated but not spent. Um, but but some of that hasn't been spent, even though the projects have started. So it's going to be spent, and, and they say that they'll be able to use that in case of any type of decline. But but you really want to see real reserves built up with with all the um, you know the limitations that go into that about them having to be held and, and used in case of a you know some type of an emergency, either an economic decline or, or something of that sort. And the governor's tapped into a lot of that settlement money for infrastructure projects. Um, it's about half um, about equal amounts for infrastructure and also for economic development. So a right. lot of the um, you know the the upstate hunger game it was called um, a lot of you know that was uh, settlement money um, and a lot of other economic development projects have been funded um, as well as uh, you know a big chunk of the uh, the Mario Cuomo bridge right right and, and the small sliver of that has gone to fund operations for the state as well it has and but you know I guess the big picture what's really different we did a piece on this comparing New York to California which I mentioned at the top of the show and the big difference is that in New York what goes into the reserve is entirely discretionary Whereas in California, there's a formal mechanism for mandatory deposits into this reserve that has allowed them to really build up um, a big fund balance, 10% of the general fund in reserve um, 
for if and when things go bad, or to deal with any shocks, such as perhaps something from the federal tax reform. Yeah, and and New York and um, sorry, California is on track to, to meet that this year, whereas New York, you know, they're on track to that ten percent, and New York is closer to about three percent of its general fund. So our you know recent episode, we talked a little bit about how federal tax reform, more specifically, would impact New York. This is something that state leaders did. Uh, address, unlike many other topics we'll get to, but this is something that they did address in the state budget. What do they do? What's the reason behind doing it? Um, and what can we expect the uh, impact will be if it all works out well? And let me just say before you go into the details, this is something else that you know the governor is putting front and center is something he's especially proud of. New right. York is you know leading the way. He likes very much for New York to be first at things. Yes. Uh, understand, you know, understandable from a politician, of course. Um, and, you know, he sees New York as among, and it is, you know, the most vulnerable, if not the most vulnerable states to this new federal tax code. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so what are they, what are so, they attempting? So the, the biggest issue was the cap on state and local tax deductions. Um, so right now, or previously to the, to the adoption of the federal reforms, um, if you paid a dollar in New York state taxes, you could deduct that from your income when calculating your federal liability. Um, and depending on what your tax rate was, but but let's say it basically would take about 35% off of your um, off of your federal taxable income, reducing your federal liability by a similar percentage. Um, so it was a significant benefit. The the federal reforms put a cap on that deduction of $10,000. Um, now, for many New Yorkers, um, it's actually not that big of a deal because they raised the um, the standard deduction at the same time. Um, however, for high wealth individuals, people who make a lot of money. Um, that $10,000 cap is very significant. If you're making, um, you know, millions of dollars, you're paying hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars in New York state taxes. Um, so being capped at $10,000 has a really significant impact. Um, and the net impact is that it really increases the cost of living in New York versus a low tax state. And that's, that's really where the fear comes from. Um, right. and it, so this is not a debate about how much high income earners should be paying in taxes. This is a debate about what it costs to be a high income earner in New York versus any other place. Correct. Um, and, and that's that's really the problem is, is that anywhere else is that we're scared New York um, high wealth individuals, high income individuals will leave New York and, and take their tax dollars with them. So for the, you know, the, the middle class family in upstate New York who says, I, I don't care about the cap on state and local tax deductions. I'm just going to take the standard deduction. It doesn't impact me. Why is the state messing around? And, and I'd say they should be very concerned because if that person making $100 million a year in New York City moves to Florida, they're taking that $8 million in New York state taxes that they pay with them. And, and suddenly that's going to impact the state's financial plan and impact you know school aid and, and transportation aid and all the other things that, that go along with it. Um, so to address um, the potential flight, a, a billionaire bon voyage, if you will, um, <laughs> the budget creates state chari charitable trusts. This will basically allow a taxpayer to make a donation to these trusts and then get an 85% credit against their personal income tax liabilities. They would also then be able to deduct that contribution from their federal and state taxes as a charitable contribution. Um, localities would be able to create trusts for, for the same purposes for property taxes. Um, this is really significant because what it, what it lets people do is basically maintain the deductibility of their state and local taxes by putting it through this, this other provision. Um, State-run, nonprofit, charitable organization 
make a donation, basically get to write it off your taxes. Yeah, and, and it'll still go towards the same program. Certainly that's the intent um, and, and our understanding that, you know, it'll still fund all the same state programs, um, but you get to deduct it from your federal liability, um, which is really significant. It could save, um, you know, taxpayers, you know, those, those high wealth individuals um, significant amounts of money. Now there's a question about whether the IRS will allow this, weigh in on it in some way we don't know how that's going to go there is and that's why they did the 80 part of the reason why they did the 85 percent credit as opposed to a one-for-one credit um the irs has actually approved similar programs for other purposes in the past um they weren't quite as um it wasn't quite as clear in those prior programs that it was done being done for the express purpose of avoiding um federal taxation um but so there there is some there's some question there um obviously the you know the governor is confident um, state tax department is pretty confident, um, and and we think it's certainly a good opportunity, a good uh, a good possibility. Um, the second thing that the state did, which is which should not be subject to any type of challenge, um, certainly is, it would be less apt to be challenged, is they created the employer compensation expense program. Um, Governor Rilgeron proposed it as a compensation and expense tax, um, but they changed the name in the adopted budget. Um, so basically, it's a payroll tax that would be phased in over three years. It's completely optional for the employer. Very key, very key element of this. Yes. yes. Um, the there is a question about how many how many businesses will, will opt in, um, but essentially, what the the business would do is instead of giving somebody a raise, um, you know, going forward next year, instead they would pay this optional payroll tax on their behalf, um, or give them a lower raise, kind of you know, depending on the individual and you know, all those decisions. Um, and then the employer would be able to deduct that from their federal taxes. It's fully deductible. It's a business expense. Um, and then the employee who had that, you know, the the one and a half percent, or you know, it's phased in, um, would then be able to take that off of their state tax liability. Um, again, it's another way to to get around that cap on state and local tax deductions. Um, and again, something that should really be targeted um, and, ben- and really benefit those those high wealth individuals, assuming their their employer, uh, you know chooses to go forward with it right so the you know the other part of this of course is that the you know you don't just pass it into law and then it gets implemented overnight there's a long process ahead of us in terms of how this is executed um and you know monitoring the fiscal and economic behavior that's associated with uh uptake on these things and of course the downside of being first is as ben said there's uncertainty about what the irs will do and Mm -hmm. we'll probably be the ones to find out about what the reaction is um and of course, the long-term picture is well. You know, you have to think about what this means for your tax code more generally, um, and also the balance of taxes and spending. Uh-huh. And so, let's talk a little bit more about spending growth in the budget. Um, as you said, it's probably the growth is probably around four percent, not two percent for um, state operating funds. And yet, we mm-hmm. know that the governor has really held the line on agency growth. Um, we know that the Medicaid redesign team is limited growth in Medicaid, which is a huge part of the budget. Um, but one area that continues to grow is school aid. Yeah. Um, what's happened, you know, what happened with school aid? We talked about how it, it broke the cap, but tell us a little more about how, um, how that aid will be distributed and how it's growing. So, I mean, I, I, I've been on before to talk about how, how CBC has been pushing the state to really better target, uh, particularly foundation aid. Um, it's about now it's going up to, to close to $18 billion uh, out of the $26 billion in, in total school aid. Um, so that's, you know, roughly two thirds. 
Um, and we think more of it really needs to be targeted towards those high need school districts and away from wealthy districts. Um, you know, that's the reason why foundation was re- foundation aid was created was to ensure that those, those poorer districts really have the, the resources to provide a, a sound basic education. It wasn't meant as a way to kind of spread money throughout the state. And unfortunately, um, there's a certain portion of foundation aid that, that, that continues to happen to. Um, so the adopted budget, um, really had less um, than a lot of the advocates called for, like you said, um, in more than what general, the governor proposed. In just total funding. Correct. Right. Yeah, they, they had been calling for, you know, two, two and a half billion dollar increases, and, and, and total increase ended up being being a billion, um, still 4% and exceeding the cap, as you mentioned before. Um, so the, the actual breakdown of numbers, um, just kind of give a, a quick overview. Every single one of the state's 674 school districts got an increase in their foundation aid. Um, and 148 or 22% of those districts got a, a the due minimum increase of 1.9%, mm-hmm. um, which will cost taxpayers an additional $35 million. So regardless of what's going on in that school district, as far as increasing or decreasing enrollments, or if they're the wealthiest school district in the state, they're still going to get a 1.9% increase in their total foundation aid. Um, and, and that's something that we think is not sustainable in the long term. As we mentioned, you know, we're in the middle or towards we're in the midst of a very long economic expansion. At some point, the state's revenues are going to go down and, and cuts are going to have to be made. Um, and if the state continues to allocate money to places it doesn't need it while not building up its reserves, um, it's going to make those cuts even more uh, draconian. And so this is something where uh, we've heard the governor talk time and time again about New York spends more per pupil than any other state. You just want more money, more money, more money. And yet every year he just agrees to give more money to school aid um, without some of the reforms that CBC and others have called for in terms Mm. of the formula. Um, Is that just a matter of sort of the politics of it? You have the Democrat-led assembly that is always pushing for lots more money. And even the Senate, uh, the Republican-led Senate, wants more and more school aid even to the wealthy districts. So there's really not a lot of appetite seemingly for for changes. And he, he's tried some different reforms about how the money's spent and about, um, you know, all sorts of other things related to teacher evaluations and things like that. But he's basically just sort of backed off a lot of that. Right. Yeah. And a lot of times what ends up happening or what we've seen in the past is the governor will propose um, a school aid uh, increase that's right at the cap. And then the legislature will come and hire. This year, the governor actually proposed above the cap. Um, the cap was came in lower than, than past years because of, you know, what it's tied to regarding um, personal income growth. But still, it was, it was a break from the past where the governor, at least in the past, had, had held the line a bit. Um, I will point out that, that the state education commissioner, um, when asked by, uh, by Liz Benjamin on, on her show um, about whether or not it made sense to start pulling foundation aid away from high wealth districts, she said yes. Um, so th- there are some, you know, within state government, um, state education commissioner, of course, appointed by the Board of Regents, which is appointed by the state assembly. Um, not by the governor, but still, there, there, I think there is some movement and there's an understanding, even among some of the advocates, that um, you know a billion-dollar increase actually is kind of nice to get and that in the future they understand that that might not always be there. Yeah, I mean, but one of the things that I think is worth pushing on is, Dave, your analysis of foundation aid has found that actually you can fully fund a sound basic education under the formula um, by eliminating the aid to these high wealth districts that can fully fund an education that are already spending a lot on their own and just redirecting it to the, the low income districts. But sort of that, that 
line of argument and thinking is absent among these calls for more and more and more money. Similarly, Ben, I think you made an excellent point that the attempts to initially the attempts were to bring money into the system um, and tie it to all these accountability mechanisms that have just completely withered away. And so there's a sense of, oh, we're just going to throw money into the system, but there's nothing about, well, what are we getting for the results? And so, yes, the high wealth districts with low needs who can fund the education are having stellar educational outcomes. I don't think you could say the same for a lot of places in the state. So it's really about what are we getting for the investment and how can we better use the dollars to educate kids? And one, though, reform along those lines in some way is that the governor did get this language attached where New York City is going to have to report exactly how much money is going to each of its individual, I think it's something like 1,700 schools. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he's basically saying you're going to have to show that accounting and then we'll see what happens from there. That's sort of a new measure attached to New York City and, you know... It's a, it's a little bit strange. It seems to obviously be tied to the mayor-governor feud, um, but but they yeah. are demanding and now requiring that new measure of transparency to some extent. Yeah, and some other some of the other big schools um, school districts will be impacted as well. Um, and and I don't think there's ne- necessarily something bad about you know more disclosure. It seems like it's going to be sure. a decent amount of work for for the school districts um, on top of what they're already preparing to do for the federal government the following year. Um, but we know that there's definitively issues with equity in spending and allocation of resources uh, between school districts. Um, when you have certain school districts that are spending, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars per pupil, and the state is still spending, sending them thousands of dollars per kid. When other states are, you know, I'm sorry, other school districts uh, are struggling to, you know, to spend fifteen thousand dollars per pupil, um, which is still more than the nationwide average. Um, right. Every single school district in New York State spends more than, than the U.S. average, which is also something to, to kind of think about when, when thinking about all these figures. But in terms of saying to New York City or any other city uh, which is you know has its own school district, um, how are you allocating within your district to the individual schools? Um, as you said, I don't see any reason why added transparency and reporting on that front is a negative. Um you know, one of the interesting things that the mayor has pushed back on is, you know, one of the big criticisms, and we've talked about it on, on this podcast, is sort of that they've thrown a ton of money at struggling schools. So the, right. the yeah. you know, the schools that are that are struggling the most, where in the Bloomberg era they might have closed those schools, the de Blasio program, the renewal schools, the community school program, they've put a ton of money into the lowest performing schools. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it stands to reason that this reporting is <laughs> going to mostly show that, but it'll be interesting to see what it shows. Yeah, and, and kind of the, the other side to that is that we know it costs more money to educate kids who have special needs and kids who are English language learners. So you very may will, will see that even, you know, two schools who are both doing okay, let's say in a similar levels of success, one is spending vastly more than another, um, but it's needed because of the needs of those kids. So so the, I think the, the results will have to be taken with a the, with the big grain of salt. Yeah, and there are ways even on the, the City Department of Education website to find a lot of this information already in terms of the mm-hmm. school profiles, um, but, but I don't know that we've seen the exact accounting for every dollar that's going towards the schools. But there are some of those numbers, and there are the profiles of the student population. Right, though the school-based budgets, as they were called once upon a time, was something that was published and regularly available on the DOE website and then kind of was not publicly available for a long time. So I don't really buy that it'll be an onerous requirement for the city to comply with. And actually, you know, my gut, based on what, you know, according to what you said too, Ben, is that, 
it'll it'll probably show that the city is doing a good job of directing the dollars. There'll probably be more work to do, right? And th- this is a stated goal of the city. There's the fair school funding, which is intended to do just that and direct more resources to the schools that need them. And you know, Dean Foulihan, the first deputy mayor, when he was budget director, would testify and say, yes, you know, we're making progress towards our target on that front. So I don't think it'll be onerous, and I think the results will be mostly positive for the city, if I had to guess. And, um, and and we should say we just we don't know and right. and that'll be helpful to see and it yes. might be that for some not great reasons there are schools in wealthier neighborhoods that are getting perhaps almost like you know on the state level where some of the you know some money that maybe shouldn't be sent to the wealthier districts maybe there's some extra money that's sort of being sent to the schools in the higher performing areas of the city that that could be sent elsewhere so as you said Dave you know, there's there's not nothing wrong with a little more transparency here, and as you said, Maria, it doesn't seem like it's that onerous. Um, so right, and I think it'll open up a conversation about what's really important. You know, we're getting a little in the weeds here, but about teachers and how you know where teachers are assigned and where more experienced teachers go, and the mm-hmm. allocation of that within the school system that will be really important, and I think is deserves to be revisited in the context of renegotiating a new contract between the city and the UFT. And I will say, I haven't looked at this lately, but on that same front is the notion that, you know, when a school is budgeting, more experienced teachers are more expensive. That's right. And so there are often decisions that principals have to make around their workforce and payments. And, you know, it's not always so easy to move teachers around or out of a school if they're becoming, quote unquote, too expensive or more expensive than you'd like. And you could have two young English language learner teachers for the same payroll fee as an experienced English teacher, you know, uh, English language arts teacher, you know, those decisions come into play. And I know there's been, you know, fairly quiet calls for a long time to sort of remove that equation from principals having to deal with their school budgets, uh, which, you know, is a conversation for another time. (laughs) All right. Which we will have, (laughs) listeners. Yes, we should have that. Um, Um, Okay, so... In terms of education and the city and the state, um, you know, education aid went up. It was greater Mm -hmm. than the proposal. I think in terms of what the city assumed in its own financial plan, our estimates back of the envelope is it's still about $100 million less. Um, That's one of the big parts in terms of what the city looks at when they look at the state budget. Um, But this year there was a hodgepodge of other things that could have been disastrous and were averted, uh, particularly in terms of A, uh, grabbing the city's property tax revenues in these value capture districts, and then be shifting a lot of cost for the MTA capital plan onto the city. Um, but and and the city got other things, and it got dinged on other things as well, right? So it's going to have to pony up the money now. And the mayor has agreed for the subway action plan. Um, on the other hand, it did get design build for the BQE project that it's been seeking for a very long time and for Rikers as well. So that was positive, <laughs> even though these projects will proceed with the PLA. That's what I was about to say. So it was kind of, uh, you know, you, you give with one hand and, and take away, you know, say half of it with, with the other hand. Um, yeah. so, so there was some movement, but, but unfortunately, it was, I think the, the, the mayor said it was a mixed bag the other day. And I mm-hmm. think that's really the, the best way to put it. Um, there were some positive elements, some negative um, and the you know the 418 million towards the MTA um, obviously is a big bit of a hit for the city, but it is a, it is a positive for the MTA that they're going to get those funds, and hopefully it'll it'll help out the strap hangers. And again, that's the subway action plan where 
chair, Joe Loda of the MTA, and the governor have basically been saying to the mayor, you should put up half. The mayor's been saying no. And they basically, in the state budget, forced the mayor's hand to say either put up the money or we're going to basically take it from the city in another way. Hmm. And so the mayor's like, okay, we'll give it to you. And now he's trying to say, all right, you got the money you wanted. Let's see the results. And that's totally fair. Mm-hmm. And the governor is sort of saying something similar on NYCHA. Hey, we're right. going to give you some more money. We're also putting in these other checks and oversights um, on NYCHA or even if you want to go back to the MTA. I sort mm-hmm. of interrupted you there. Yeah, right. But but um, those are a couple of the big ticket items related to the city. Any other things we should know about MTA, NYCHA? Uh, there's obviously the, the mini step toward a congestion pricing plan or first step, I, I guess we can say. Yeah, I mean, I think I think first steps and uh, is a good way to describe it. So the the, the congestion pricing plan it kind of completely ignores private vehicles, um, which is you know something that, that you know many people have been, been critical of. Um, personal vehicles. Personal vehicles. Yeah. yeah. So if you're driving your own car into downtown Manhattan, you don't have to worry. If you take an Uber, you're going to be hit with a you know with a charge. Um, but it is a first step, and, and it's a way to kind of move the ball forward, and it does provide some money to to the MTA. Um, and then, uh, but a three-year, you know, this this fix NYC panel recommendations that the governor put together. This panel, they came up with the recommendations: three-year, three phases, full congestion pricing plan, mm-hmm. a lot of backing from civic groups and and mm-hmm. some elected officials and and transit advocates, et cetera. And then the governor didn't really get outwardly behind it but said he was working on it you know he didn't say exactly what he wanted i think he just wanted to leave that to sort of the the more secretive negotiations and so he did that and then he got this tax you know this added surcharge on taxis and and black cars and ubers and lifts and such going into the manhattan uh central business district and he's saying hey i got something i got the first step of the plan and then we'll move on to to looking for the subsequent steps, and there obviously is worry that that's not going to happen. But yeah, the I first don't step see did the happen. momentum going into the legislative session to deal with congestion pricing. You know, I just think that this is what they're they're going to call it done for this year. And you know, if things keep continuing the way they are, and there's no turnaround, then they'll be forced back to think about it. But I just don't see that happening in this session. Right. This could easily be something that's more picked up again next January yeah. or, or late in the year, leading up to the whoever the governor is, uh, (laughs) their state of the state in in next January. It is an election year. So the, you know, not only is the governor not necessarily wanting to, uh, to anger any voters who, who drive to the business district every day. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but certainly, you know, the members of the assembly and the Senate don't want to either. Yeah. So, uh, NYCHA, um, are there anything else that people need to, to hear other than that the governor secured, 250 million more. He's now using this number of 550 million because he's, I think, combining it with prior money that was allocated but not spent, which is a strange thing for him to sort of, you know, try to um, sell in that way. Uh, there's going to be a independent m- uh, contractor monitor of some kind to oversee the spending of the money. Anything else we need to know? Um, I mean, the the two hundred fifty million is capital. I think that's kind of one of okay, the only other right. pieces. So it doesn't it doesn't count against that two percent uh, cap. So there's no money. There's no there's no spending displaced. Um, it, it's outside that that state operating, which uh, which always makes it a little bit easier to uh, to to add that on after the budget comes out. Yeah, the the NYCHA, I don't see the NYCHA developments as as positive as others do, I guess. The money coming in is good. They need the money. The capital need is immense. I mean, you know, in some ways it's a drop in the bucket, but, you know, you need it. 
Um, the ability to do design build is good, again, is limited by the provision for a PLA and some other language that seems to say, well, after you use design build to do your capital improvements, you then have to use essentially public employees to on the maintenance and ops. And I think that is overly restrictive and not helpful to the cause. And, you know, I'll say this sort of say that there are people are drawing many parallels between the MTA and, and NYCHA, but here's another, which is, I don't think you solve either of these problems without getting the unions to come to the table to talk about work rule changes and other things that will make the work proceed, you know, make the repairs speedier, uh, make the the shifts and the the ability to do the work, you know, more flexible for MTA management to plan. Um, And that is missing from the conversation here. Uh, The governor and the mayor don't seem to be thinking about that at all. And that is going to be a big part of the puzzle if we're going to really move, you know, see forward movement and improvement for both of these agencies. And we know from um, her appearance on this podcast and other uh, comments that the NYCHA chair and CEO, Shola Olatoya, has has made, that that is something that she thinks about at least, but she hasn't um, gotten too far on on that issue. All right, in our last few minutes here with Dave Freefell, CBC's uh, Director of State Studies, uh, breaking down the new state budget. Uh, There's going to be lots more to digest in the coming days, weeks, and months, and we're going to obviously have to see what is on the table, if much of anything, in this legislative session that's coming up in an election year, and that'll get going in Albany um, in the next week or two, although, you know, they won't really get going on that for a few more weeks before, uh, you know, the, the, it's going to end in June, so they'll do most of their work right before that deadline as usual. But anyway, last just last couple things, um, you know, another budget, another couple of small sort of reforms, but a lot of things missing like campaign finance reform, election reform. We mentioned school aid reform. Um, you, you briefly touched on the lack of economic development spending reform. Um, you know, this, this database of deals, mm-hmm. which is seemingly a very simple request of transparency, uh, no real appetite on that. No, it was in both um, the Senate and the Assembly both had very similar proposals in their one house budgets. Um, so we, we take them you know, at their word that they are supportive of the proposal. And as the uh, the Assembly Speaker said when, when asked about this specifically, he said, you know, you need three legs of the stool to, to get anything included. Um, so that, that last leg being the, the governor, who apparently is opposed. Um, which doesn't make uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense because it's really just kind of general transparency type things. It's a lot of the information is actually available um, in slightly different formats um, in different reports released by Empire State Development, um, and we want to see it, everything presented um, in the same way so that you can compare. Um, you can have you'd be able to have um, project by project information to make sure that you know the state's tax their tax state taxpayer dollars are being. Um, used in an efficacious way and actually getting a return on those investments. Almost like if you wanted to see where all the school funding money was going on a school-by-school basis. It's a very similar um, thought process, I think. Exactly. Um, (laughs) Return on investment, right? Yeah, you know, what's what's good for the goose is good for the gander, and we Mm. we think that, uh, you know, state taxpayers should see it. And and in light of all of the... um, you know the the ongoing trials and the recent convictions. We would expect the governor to to want to actually push this this information out there and and 
you know, if if he and and um, the head of ESD are, are right, and that all of these programs are working well, absent you know a few bad apples, then they should put that information out there. And I and I think the public is mature enough to understand that not every single economic development project is gonna gonna work. But if the vast majority do, and, and you're getting good return on the investment, then I think you'd have support for these programs, and 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 you don't because of it. Right. And we'll see if again if there's any appetite for anything like that in the legislative session. Most likely not. Most likely. Um, folks are going to want to avoid, you know, conflict and such in the election year. Um, but again, we did, as you noted, you know, trials, conviction. We just had the governor's top former aide convicted um, on on several counts, and we have another trial coming up. We just wrote about this recently, where you're going to have these economic development programs, especially in Buffalo, um, very out in the open, and a lot of talk related to this next trial about how these programs have been run and the bidding process and, and um, you know, it's all going to be out there also tied to the campaign finance side, right? And that's where you see, you saw in the Prococo trial, the LLC loophole on very clear display. There was no talk about closing the LLC loophole uh, in this budget, even though the governor has said he's supportive of doing that. Um, so, you know, we sort of need to note it. Um, it's not surprising. Nobody's shocked that a lot of these reforms didn't make it in. But, of course, it's important um, to, to keep discussing them. And, you know, they're not going anywhere because, like I said, this next trial is coming up. Um, and, there, and there's and, talk. And CBC and some of the, you know, good government groups that we work with, um, Reinvent Albany, Fiscal Policy Institute, um, you know, and others, we're going to keep pushing this. We're not we're not going to go away. We're going to, you know, keep holding press conferences and meeting with legislative staff and then trying to, to figure out a way to, to make this happen. And, and, and the election reforms, too, is not necessarily a CBC issue, but, you know, this is something where the 2016 presidential election brought it into very sharp relief New York's uh, sort of antiquated for election laws. I don't think anybody can really dispute that. Um, you can you can certainly parse which election reforms make the most sense and and things like that. But you know, when thirty, I believe it's seven states have instituted early voting. You know, New York is clearly behind on that, and the governor put some money in his executive budget to to fund early voting. People were excited about that and the amendments, and then that, of course, uh, didn't make it in. So that's just one example of that. So. I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Dave, as always, thank you. And we'll be looking uh, to you more as we continue to uh, digest the state budget. Obviously, when it's passed in the middle of the night, uh, it takes time for people to actually read the thing. Um, it, it not does. if you're voting on it, but if you want to really understand what's in it. And the uh, the financial plan will come out sometime in the middle of May, and we'll, we'll have a clearer picture then of exactly how they're kind of going to be spending the money they just authorized. Very good. Well, thank you, and we'll talk more soon. Thank, thank you. you, Dave. Bye.